Today's reading is John chapter 13, verses 1 through 15. It was just before the, Jew- the Passover festival. Jesus knew that the hour had come for him to leave this world and go to the Father. Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. The evening meal was in progress, and the devil had already prompted Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, to betray Jesus. Jesus knew that the Father had put all things under his power, and that he had come from God and was returning to God. So he got up from the meal, took off his outer clothing, and wrapped a towel around his waist. After that, he poured water into a basin and began to wash his disciples' feet, drying them with the towel that was wrapped around him. He came to Simon Peter, who said to him, Lord, are you going to wash my feet? Jesus replied, You do not realize now what I am doing, but later you will understand. No, said Peter, you shall never wash my feet. Jesus answered, Unless I wash you, you have no part with me. Then Lord, Simon Peter replied, Not just my feet, but my hands and my head as well. Jesus answered, Those who have had a bath need only to wash their feet. Their whole body is clean, and you are clean, though not every one of you. For he knew who was going to betray him, and that is why he said not everyone was clean. When he had finished washing their feet, he put on his clothes and returned to his place. Do you understand what I have done for you? He asked them. You call me teacher and Lord, and rightly so, for that is what I am. Now that I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also should wash one another's feet. I have set you an example that you should do as I have done for you. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be God. You may be seated. While I was preparing for this talk, I encountered an article um, with that headline. And the article begins with these words, after nearly seven years as CFO, I will be retiring from Google to spend more time with my family. The article says that's how Patrick Pichette, one of Google's highest ranking executives, led his recent announcement that he'd be retiring from his role at the company. That line of reasoning has become something of a safe cliche among notable executives leaving their posts. But then Pichette did something unusual. He kept going offering a candid explanation about the struggles of work-life balance at his level. Pichette recalls a vacation in Africa with his wife last fall during which she suggested they keep traveling and really see the world. He initially objected, noting the importance of his work at the Internet giant. And he writes, Then she asked the killer question, he wrote in his memo, which he posted to Google. So when is it going to be time? Our time. My time. The questions just hung there in the cold morning African air. 
He started to lay out the argument in his head. Their kids had grown up and moved away. He had worked for nearly 30 consecutive years of his life, and his wife clearly deserved more quality time. He knew it was time to hit the road. And he writes these words. In the end, life is wonderful, but nonetheless a series of trade-offs, especially between business-slash-professional endeavors and family-slash-community. And thankfully, I feel I'm at a point in my life where I no longer have to have to make such tough choices anymore. And for that, I'm truly grateful. Now granted, many people don't have the option to pursue a lifestyle that would be made possible by being the CFO of Google. But the reason why I call your attention to the story is because of the power of the question that his wife asked him. The power of questions in general. His wife's question arrested his attention. It stuck with him. It haunted him, even to the point where he could not dismiss it and then just go on living life as he had been. A well-placed question prompted reflection that altered his future. And I think that Jesus' questions have the power to do the same thing. They can cause us to reflect on our lives, on the story that we're living out of, on what's occupying our primary focus in life. And Jesus' questions can invite people to live out of a different narrative, one that's about life. Because Jesus said in John 10.10, I have come that you might have life and that you might have it to the full. And if you stop and you think about those words for more than five seconds, you realize there's an assumption in those words. That apart from Jesus, we can't find that fullness of life. No matter how much effort we put into it, no matter how much money we amass, we cannot on our own, through our own abilities, step into and experience the fullness of life that only Jesus can offer. And that's why we're exploring the questions that Jesus asked. Because the Gospel writers record... 307 questions Jesus asked. And as we explore these questions, we find ourselves being invited into the, to live into the questions that Jesus asked, believing that they can, can shape us and they will lead us into the fullness of life that Jesus wants to give to us. Well, today's question emerges from the text that was read to us from John's Gospel by Kara. John 13, if you'd like to turn there, and the Bible's underneath your seats, it's page 900. It's John 13. If you have an app on your um, mobile phone, feel free to open it up. And the question this morning that we're looking at is the question, do you understand what I've done for you? Do you understand what I've done for you? A little bit of background. This incident takes place during the week leading up to Jesus' crucifixion and resurrection. It's what Mike said we call Holy Week. And it begins today with Palm Sunday, the day that Jesus entered Jerusalem with the crowds welcoming him with these words in John chapter 12, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. But by the time we get to John chapter 13, Jesus is gathered with his disciples in a room and the tone has shifted. It's now become darker because This is now leading up to his betrayal by one of the twelve in a very short amount of time. One of his own will betray him. 
And so now he's preparing them for his absence. And in the middle of the meal, Jesus surprises his disciples by washing their feet. And you can, we've already seen it, but you can, again, look down at verses 4 and 5. A little bit of background. It's customary to wash feet upon entering a home. Uh, people wore open-toed sandals, and so there was not only the dust that would accumulate from walking on the roads, but back in those days, hygiene was very different than it is today. And so to walk on the road meant that you would also encounter both animal filth and human filth along the roads. It was also customary when you, when you ate that you would, you would be configured in what is called a triclinium. I've given a diagram here. You can see this is an ancient uh, depiction of it. Typically what you'd have is a three-sided like, low sofa to the ground. Your feet would be hanging out on the sides, but it didn't mean they'd be removed from the people next to you. So imagine coming in with feet that have been exposed to the filth that I've just described and then trying to enjoy a meal. It would not be really pleasant. And so it was customary for, upon entering a home, that the servants would wash the feet. One of Jesus' inner circle of three raises the objection. In verse 6, he came to Simon Peter who said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? And what's the objection here? I think that Peter is saying, you are our Lord, you are our master. You shouldn't be washing my feet. This is what servants do for their master. And Jesus then responds in verse 7, he says, what I'm doing you do not understand now, but afterward you will understand. And Peter responds yet again, he says, you shall never wash my feet. And then Jesus responds back to him again, which I think could be interpreted as Jesus saying, if you want to participate in my kingdom, then you must identify with me in this way. Jesus then asks in verse 12, do you understand what I've done for you? Notice the context. Context is very important when we're going to God's word. Look at verse 33 of chapter 13. He's going to say to them, little children, yet a little while I am with you. You will seek me, and just as I said to the Jews, so now I also say to you, where I'm going, you cannot come. So Jesus is preparing them throughout this whole upper room discourse for the fact that he will no longer be with them. He'll shortly be facing a brutal death. And so every word counts as Jesus prepares his disciples to continue what he started. Look at verse 20 of the same chapter. He says, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever receives the one I send receives me, and whoever receives me receives the one who sent me. The word, that, that language of being sent, again, points to the fact that Jesus is preparing these men to continue what he's begun. I'm going to be sending you. I'm trying to prepare you because I'm not going to be with you in a short while. And so every word counts now as we read this. Jesus is making every word count as he seeks to prepare these men. So when Jesus asks, do you understand what I've done for you? This is not like a pop quiz, like, do you understand that two and two is four? He doesn't want them to miss it. His tone, his posture is one of, I don't want you to miss this. I want to make sure that you get this because it is so critical for my mission to continue through you all that you get what it is that is going on here. He's saying, I have given you an example of what you're to do. 
In other words, I've shown you how the world is going to be changed after I leave you. Now, if I was there, I might be thinking to myself, are you serious, Jesus? Are you really serious, Jesus? Are you suggesting that the world is going to be transformed through this basin, the towel? Well, obviously, I think it's more than a physical wash basin and towel that Jesus is referring to. Because if you notice again the context in John 13, verse 1, John sets up the narrative with these words. It's important to pay attention to how the, the writer is framing what he's doing. It says, Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. John sets up this narrative with a very explicit statement of Jesus' love. And by introducing this, this narrative, this, this event with these very, this very explicit statement of love, John wants his readers to see the foot washing as a tangible expression of this love. Jesus then amplifies further in this chapter, in verse 34 and 35, he says, A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. So Jesus says, the world will be transformed. I am sending you into the world and the world will be transformed to the extent that you love people as I have loved you. Notice some key words in verse 15. He says, for I've given you an example that you also should do as I have done to you. And then verse 34. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another just as I have loved you. See, it's very specific. It's very specific. Jesus is talking about his own example. He's saying, look at what I have done for you, because that is a model of how you are to love. You're to love like I have loved. The model is Jesus. So I think there's one thing we can conclude, and that is if you want to know what it means to be a disciple of Jesus, to be a disciple of Jesus is to follow Jesus in loving people like Jesus loves. To be a disciple of Jesus is to follow Jesus in loving people like Jesus loves. And what's interesting is that still today, Jesus calls people to himself in order that they might join him in transforming the world by loving people with Jesus' style of love. But here's my question, and maybe it's yours. Can love really get the job done? Really, can love really get the job done? Does Jesus really expect love to continue what he's begun? He's left us here. He's left us here as a people who are gathered around him, finding our identity in him. And he says, we're called to love the world. And he is going to bring his transformation to the world as we love like he has loved. And so my question is really, seriously, do we really believe that love can get the job done? I mean, what about megachurches? They, shouldn't we, I mean, they have power. What about Christian celebrities? 
What about evangelism strategies? What about political activism? What about church planting? Those are all things that we've reached out to to say that's how we're going to get the job done. We need more of that. We need more of that and more power in that area. But Jesus says, a new commandment I give to you that you love one another. And that really wasn't new because that was found in the Hebrew scriptures, Israel's scriptures, but it's this part, just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. He's saying, I've shown you how the world is going to be transformed after I leave you, and it's through loving people as I have loved you. So my suggestion, my suggestion to you all, is that if we are going to take Jesus seriously, then we need to receive these words with the weight that Jesus intends them to have. Jesus' love is real. It's very real. And Jesus is saying that love is real. Our love is real. It has power. It's so real, this love is so real, that John will later say in 1 John 4, 8, God is love. You want to sum up God? God is love. So yes, love can get the job done. Why? Because love is the most powerful force in the universe. Now you may say, well, that sounds kind of like a cliche because we all know what love is. And, and many people think of love as warmth, as kindness, as affection. For many people, we default to thinking about love as an emotion. We talk about falling in love as if, as if love is involuntary. And for most of us in our culture, love is something that is deeply personal and is private most of the time. But Jesus portrays love as being two-sided, like a coin. It has power. It has power. And it's this two-sided love that's in play as Jesus goes to the cross. Look at John 15, verses 12 and 13. Look at your Bibles, would you please? He says, again, in the same address to his disciples, this is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Here we go again. Greater love has no one than this, that someone lays down his life for his friends. And then go back to John 10, verses 17 and 18, before he ever gets into this upper room discourse. He says, For this reason the Father loves me, because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down. I have authority to take it up again. This charge I receive from my Father. So you see, Jesus has surrendered to his Father, but he's never passive. He's surrendered, but he's never passive. His love is deliberate and is done with the full awareness of the sacrifices involved. This love is conscious of its power. Jesus' love is conscious of its power. And he loves with that awareness that his love has the power to get things done. And this love stands out because it's not weak, nor is it self-centered. And it's only this kind of love that can overcome evil in the world. What are Jesus' mighty deeds? What some of you might call miracles. What are Jesus' mighty deeds if not love overcoming evil in the world? Jesus heals the sick. Jesus raises the dead. Jesus feeds the hungry. Jesus casts out demons. 
demons. It's all about love overcoming evil. When Jesus is walking this earth, he is not doing those miracles as a magician to try to say, look, see, I'm a divine person. He is showing us what God has intended all along, and that is that love would cast out evil in the world. That love would overcome evil in the world. Someone has said that this kind of love functions like B cells in our immune system. B cells trigger the production of antibodies that defend against threatening antigens. And what's interesting about that whole physiological process is that they're strong enough to preserve us so they don't destroy us while destroying the threat to our health. So there's this destruction going on inside of us, but we are not destroyed. And this kind of love makes Jesus' followers B-cells for the world. See, we're meant to fight against, we're meant to fight for healing and holiness against the threat of evil with the weapon of empowered love. Whatever sphere we find ourselves in, wherever we encounter evil, whether it's in school or work, in our relationships, in our friendships, in our, in our marriage, in our family, wherever we might find evil threatening the world, it is there that we are called to enact empowered love to overcome that evil, to bring restoration, to bring redemption in those, in those places. That's what God has called his followers to do. That's what Jesus has said. This is what it means to look like me. Paul puts it this way in 2 Corinthians 10, verses 3 and 4. For though we live in the world, we do not wage war as the world does. The weapons we fight with are not the weapons of the world. On the contrary, they have divine power to demolish strongholds. I want to tell you that something very personal, and that is that this awareness has begun to really transform my life. It's begun to bring clarity for me and it's begun to narrow things down and bring focus for my life in a way that I have never had it before. And what this has begun to do is it's begun to shift the question for me. It's begun to shift the question from a question I function with for most of my life and that is the question of how can I improve myself. See, I think that many people think that that's what Christianity is all about. That to become a Christian is to find a way to either improve yourself or to improve your circumstances. That's why people will say, I tried it and it didn't work for me. What is that? But it's an admission that I came to it believing that it might change me or it might change my circumstances. Namely, it might improve it. And oftentimes we as pastors and churches propagate that because when you come in, we give you yet another way to improve your life. Here's five steps to get this, to do this, to be this. It's all about self-improvement. And God has begun to challenge that in my own life. He's begun to reframe the question for me from how can I improve myself to how can I learn to love like Jesus? How can I learn to love like Jesus? And in so doing, to be involved in joining him and bringing redemption and restoration wherever I find myself, whatever circumstances I find myself in, whatever relationships I find myself in. The question is, how can I learn to love like Jesus wherever I am? It's begun to simplify and clarify in very powerful ways for me. 
Final thought. This is something we learn over time. It's a competency that's developed. So therefore, it's a lifetime quest. So I, I, may, I have no illusions about the fact that if I share this about my own life, that, that I'm saying to you, go out and try to do this, and you know, by next week, it's all going to be just fantastic for you. It's something that's learned. It's a competency that's developed. And, and so the question is, so how do you become competent in this kind of love? In the book titled Different, Reimagining Holiness for a Wandering Church in a Watching World, the authors tell the story about the cycling coach, Sir David Brailsford, who was known for his success with the previously undecorated British national cycling team. Brailsford has argued that world-class performance is possible when we work toward his concept of, quote, the aggregation of marginal gains. Applying Brailsford's revolutionary concept of the British cyclist sport has resulted in its rise to world prominence. The concept is simple. Isolate every factor that contributes to success or failure and then do each one a little better. From riders having their own beds and pillows brought to the race location so they can get a slightly better night's rest than the other riders, to diet, training ergonomics, and technical improvements in their equipment, Brailsford contends there is no factor too small to ignore. These marginal gains, when taken together, combine into a radical aggregate change. Each improvement in discipline or training is small when taken in isolation, but the total change to the ultimate outcome is undeniable. And the authors then say, it is hard but thrilling to imagine what kind of change would be possible through the marginal gains of love applied to all of our lives, and not only our own lives, but the context in which we live. Jesus gives us the command to love, not because it is weak and sentimental, but because it constitutes the overthrow of this world's corrupt systems. It is a power play. So I leave you with three questions for those who are new to Grace this morning. During this whole series on the questions that Jesus asked, we've been giving you the gift of silence afterwards because so often we're lacking that in our culture. And because of that, then we don't have time to reflect. And because we don't reflect, our lives do not experience these marginal, these aggregate gains. You see, it's very possible that in this moment there might be some little aggregate gain that Jesus wants to point out to you that just take this step. Because it's there that I want to work and it's there that the world might be, begin to be transformed in that place where you find yourself. See, if we're looking for the big thing and the big day and the big moment when, and it's always in the future, it'll never happen. It will never happen. But what if all of us are taking these small steps of responding with a love that is like Jesus' love in the place where Jesus has us, with the people who Jesus has us with. And it may not be spectacular, and no one may notice. But how might it possibly add up over time? So I want to give you three questions to ponder. Where might Jesus be asking you to step in? 
Where might Jesus be asking you to step into with the power of love? Who are you being called to love intentionally? There's a who question. And what's the next incremental step you need to take? See, that begins to get real concrete. It takes it out of the abstract and says, okay, what are you going to do about it? What is it that God may be asking you to do? What's the next step? I'm going to give you some minutes, three three to four minutes to, to ponder that in the quietness of this time. You might want to jot a word down or a phrase or whatever as it comes to you, okay? So let's use this time.